Well, I once got up to share from God's Word, and I apologized. I can't even remember why I apologized. And a pastor's daughter, not my daughter, but another pastor's daughter, rebuked me. I said, don't ever apologize for proclaiming the Word of God. So I will not apologize this morning. It'll be a long message, as usual. And we will get out when we're done. If you will, please turn to the book of Hebrews. If you have your copy of Scripture. Book of Hebrews, chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 5 and 6 in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, this morning. be reading from the English Standard Version. It says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for your word. Lord, we recognize that this is not our church. We didn't purchase it with our blood. It was purchased with the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. It's his church. May we seek to bring honor and glory to him. This morning, may he be exalted in what is said and what is done and through the proclamation of your word this morning. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, you can probably guess from the text and from the title of the message, we'll we'll talk about money this morning. Some people say when the pastor talks about money, he is meddling i also talk to you this morning about being content because they go hand in hand. I know this may come as a surprise, but we live in a highly materialistic society. One of the most difficult things to do is to be content. Though few recognize it as sin, discontentment is sinful and it grieves God. Discontentment is a denial of the goodness of God and puts our will against God's will. To grumble about our situation in life is to take issue with the sovereignty of God and it puts us at odds with His providence and therefore makes us guilty of high treason against the King. Why? Because God orders all the circumstances of human life and for that reason, no matter our lot, we should be entirely satisfied with the situation we are placed in instead of complaining about it. The ungodly are never satisfied. No no matter how much they have, they always want more. But God tells us to be content with what we have. We, as followers of Christ, must, must cultivate contentment in our lives. Now, to be clear, this is not indifference, nor is it fatalism. To be content is a presence of mind that rests in the Lord and is pleased with what pleases Him and satisfaction in what He has given, and anything short of that is sinful. The philosopher Immanuel Kant said this, Give a man everything he wants, and at that moment, everything will not be everything. If we are discontent, we are saying that God has not given what we need. This was the sin of Israel in the wilderness. Remember, God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt, and He was meeting their needs, in the, and, and they grumbled about their hardship and threatened to return to Egypt. Now, before we get into the sermon, I want to briefly mention something about money as well, because the title is Don't Love Money, Be Content. I want to address both in this message because they are related. In verse 5, he starts by saying, keep your life free from the love of money. I want you to look back at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. Because what does he say in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34? The, the, The author of Hebrews says this. 
For you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. These people joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because of their testimony for Jesus Christ, because they love the Lord, because they live a life based on the Word of God. They have lost their property. And then he says to them, don't love money. There's so much for us to learn. That should cause us to really stop and think. When was the last time you had your property plundered because of your love for Jesus? My guess is never. By comparison to the rest of the world, we are fantastically wealthy. And if this Hebrew congregation had to be warned about the love of money, I wonder how much more do we have to be warned? Let me tell you what I know for sure. I know for sure that if you make over $33,000, you're in the top 50% of income earners in the U.S. The average median household income in Washington, Illinois, is over double that. It's $71,702. Let me tell you what else I know. That is this. If you make over $33,000, you are in the top 1% of income earners worldwide. And if you make $89,000 a year, there are just a few million people in the whole world that make that. Out of 7 billion, a few million make as much as you do in the entire world. Let me say this. We have been blessed. Let me also say I'm thankful that we have been blessed. But I know that the author of Hebrews told these people who had their property plundered for the name of Jesus not to love money. And if he said that to them, then I better pay attention to what he said. Additionally, I know that these verses are connected to the prior verses in this, that the love of money or possessions stands in opposition to love of the saints. And this is why we're called to be content. So let's see first to keep free from the love of money. Keep free from the love of money. The very first exhortation in the passage is for us to keep our lives free from the love of money. Now notice it does not say that we are to live our lives free from money. It says that we are to live a life free from the love of money. And there is a reason for this. When a challenge comes into your life, you will go to what you love most. So this is the way it looks because of our testimony for Christ. You're in a position where you will maybe lose material possessions. Well, you will go with what you love most. If you love money, then you will compromise your testimony in order to gain money or gain possessions because you love money more than you love Christ. And so the author says, don't love money. And he's saying it to a congregation that has people in it that lost their possessions for their commitment to Christ. And that should be a huge statement for us. He doesn't say that money is bad or that money is the problem. He says the love of money is. The love of money is the issue. I can't tell you how often people misquote Scripture and they say things like, well, money is the root of all evil. No, the love of money is the root of all evil. That is a, a true statement and a beneficial one to us because it tells us we need to be on guard against the love of money. The problem is not money, it's loving money. The problem is when we put our hopes in money, when we cast our affections on money. So what the author is making clear is that if we really care about material possessions, and then those material possessions are threatened because of our commitment to Jesus, are you going to give them up when the threat comes? Or are you going to say, no, I'm, I'm going to compromise? If you have to choose between Jesus and money, are you going to choose Jesus? See, people that love the world will not stand firm in the storm that asks them to choose between money and Jesus. If you love the world, you will choose money. Now, 
This is not just a question in theory, because today there are people right here in America that have lost their jobs and their businesses because of their commitment to Christ. So don't think that this is not practical, because it is before, before the test ever arrives at your doorstep. Before the test ever comes into your life, you better be clear where you stand in your heart of hearts. Do you love Jesus or do you love the world? Are you willing to give up the possessions that you have for Christ? Let me be honest. Too often we aren't even willing to give a portion to the Lord, let alone if he asked you for everything. And what does that say about us? We must keep free from the love of money. Secondly, we must cultivate contentment. We must cultivate contentment. The author says, be content with what you have. But, but here's the thing. Contentment does not just happen. It has to be cultivated. We have to make a deliberate effort to be content. The Apostle Paul said, in Philippians, that he learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Notice what he said? He learned. Now, if the Apostle Paul had to learn contentment, I believe it's probably safe to say that we also should do the same. If we need to learn to be content, then we better know what it is. The English word content means desiring no more than what one has. John Owen said this, contentment is a gracious frame or disposition of mind quiet and composed without complaining at God's providential disposals of our outward concerns, all envy at the more prosperous conditions of others, fears and anxious cares about future supplies and desires and designs of those things which a more plentiful condition than what we are and would supply us with. The Greek word, is archaeo. It means to be satisfied. When one is content, they are satisfied. They have with they, they don't have desire for more. They, they don't have covetousness to, to gain more. That's no longer a problem if you're content. So if we're going to cultivate contentment, if we want to cultivate contentment in our lives, how then can we do it? Well, there are some things that we must recognize in order to cultivate contentment. First, we must recognize that we live in a world of discontent. Everywhere we turn, there's discontentment. The world is constantly trying to get us to not be content with what we have. Am I right? I mean, you know I'm right. We're constantly bombarded to not be content. Watch TV. Look at billboards when you drive down the highway. Read a magazine. Everything is designed and sold to you because you're not happy with where you're at or what you currently have. The whole idea is that if you want to be happy, then you need this product because it's going to make you happy. In fact, it's estimated that the average American will experience 5,000 plus brand or ad exposures in a day. And around 362 ads only in a day. That means just plain ads. Just seeing plain ads, the average American will see over 132,000 ads in a year. That's just advertisements. And they're all, every single one of them, targeted to make you happy you need this to be happy in fact 62 percent of shoppers bought something just to cheer them up that's why they bought it that's the influence of the world saying well you you can't be content with with anything now, I want to be clear because some people will take this idea of contentment and say, well, that means that, that we should never seek to better our circumstances. That's not contentment. Contentment is not a lack of concern for material things or financial 
condition. It's not just riding through life without ambition, like, oh, I'm just satisfied with my lot in life, and I, I just really don't care about anything. That's not really contentment either. I just have to barely live. That's not contentment. The Bible condemns laziness and calls us to work hard to provide for our families and our needs. Paul makes it clear that if someone is not providing for their family, they have denied the faith and they're worse than an unbeliever. Additionally, he told the Thessalonians that he worked hard to prove uh, uh, or to provide for his own needs. And he commanded them that if anyone was not willing to work, then they should not eat. The Bible also makes it clear that wealth could be a sign of God's blessing, and we are commanded to manage our money and possessions that God has entrusted to us and to have foresight and discipline for anticipated future needs. The Bible also speaks of the dangers of wealth. The disciples were left in shock when Jesus told them it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And just so we're clear, he literally met the eye of a needle. That's what he met. That's why they were shocked because they later come to him and said, it's impossible. Paul said in 1 Timothy that those that want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare. And there are many foolish and harmful desires which will plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the Father and pierced themselves with many griefs. So there's danger. What are we to do? Well, the issue is your motive for seeking more money. The issue is your motive for bettering your circumstance, if you're seeking to, to meet legitimate personal or family needs so that you are not a burden to your church or society, then it is the proper thing to do. To want to earn more money so that you can give more is a good thing. That's a good thing. I want to earn more money so I can give more. That puts me in a weird position because, you know, the church pays my salary. But, but there's nothing wrong with that. Let me be clear, there's nothing wrong with wanting more to give more or so you can properly care for your family. However, if you're trusting wealth rather than the Lord for your security, then you're off track. If your goal is to store more treasure on earth rather than heaven, you're going to lose it all. If you live lavishly and in abundance but refuse to help the poor, you're, coming, uh, you're committing the very sin that Sodom committed. If you believe that money or things are somehow going to bring you contentment, you're going to be left empty. So be careful. We live in a world of discontent. Don't allow it to be a part of your life. But we also must realize that contentment must be cultivated to grow. If you want to grow in contentment, then you have to do something. The truth of the matter is we can be content one day and not be content the next day. Because contentment like sin starts in your mind. If you want to learn to be content, you have to guard your thought life. That means you must work to develop a biblical view of material possessions, of money, of life, and of eternity. You have to avoid comparing yourself and your situation to others. You have to recognize that God is sovereign and that He has different purposes for different people. It's quite possible that God knows if, if He trusted you with more money, you would stop trusting Him. So, to cultivate contentment in our lives, we must daily bow to the sovereignty of God and trust in Him to supply all of our needs, and we must keep an eternal perspective. That is the whole point of Psalm chapter 23. Sheep that are trusting in the provision of the good shepherd. That must be our perspective, that we are trusting in the sovereign God of the universe. Now, our text makes it clear that contentment is not just going to grow without problems, because you're going to have problems. You're going to have to do battle. And specifically, we're going to have to battle with greed, which leads me to my third point this morning. Contentment is cultivated by battling greed. 
One way you can cultivate contentment in your life is by battling greed, which we so easily fall into. The author says that we are to keep our lives free from the love of money. Now, it's interesting because because this is not the only place in Scripture where greed is listed in the same context as sexual immorality, which we saw, we looked at a little bit uh, last week. They're, they're listed together throughout Scripture. Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 3. All through Scripture, greed is mentioned with sexual immorality. Not only that, but the Bible presents greed as a terrible sin. It's, it's equal to idolatry. Ephesians 5, verse 5, greed uh, ruined Balaam. Greed ruined Achan. Greed ruined Elisha's servant. Greed ruined Gehazi. It ruined the rich young ruler. It ruined Judas Iscariot. Ananias and Sapphira, remember them? Struck dead. Greed. Felix. It's greed. It brought ruin to people. Jesus says that the worries and the riches and the pleasures of this life are the thorns which come up and choke out the word of God from bearing fruit in someone's life. He also warned that we are to beware and be on guard against every form of greed. Every form of greed. He also told the parable of the rich fool who planned bigger barns to hold all of his wealth. Remember that one? I'm going to plant these big barns, hold all my wealth. I'm going to sit back and be merry. And he said, thou fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. And he concludes, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The love of money is a dangerous thing. It, it will do all it can to creep its way into your life. You will say things like this. If only I had the money, I could do this or I could do that. If only I had the money. And soon, it will consume you. If you don't deal with it, you won't be content. We can't be content unless we battle greed. We have to battle greed. And so this morning I want to share with you a few ways in which we can fight greed in our lives. A lot of times we, we like to pretend like we're not greedy, but we are. So let's, let's look at some ways that we can battle greed. First, recognize that God owns everything. One way we do battle with greed is say, we recognize God owns everything. Psalm 24 makes it clear when it says this, the earth is the Lord and all it contains. There's no room for like, oh, well, maybe. No, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. That means everything on earth belongs to him. Paul in 1 Corinthians poses a rhetorical question. Do you not know that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. You are His. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus speaks in parables. And in these parables, God is the owner and we are His manager or stewards. All through the New Testament. The owner entrusts us with resources and we use those resources to make a profit for not our purpose, but for His purpose. That's a dominant theme in many of the parables. Listen, the owner lets you draw a reasonable salary, but we should not squander the owner's assets on meaningless things for, for our own use. Otherwise, we would be irresponsible to foolishly spend the owner's assets would be forgetting that we do not own the store. We work at the store or we manage the store for the owner. And someday the owner's going to show up and he's going to check the books and see if we made a profit for his interest or not. Now that's not saying you can't have nice things. It's not saying that you can't enjoy yourself. It is saying that you need to understand that it is not yours. And if you want to fight against greed, you must recognize that God owns everything. You must have His perspective on, perspective on money. You must have His perspective on possessions and surrender it all to Him because He owns it anyway. You manage it. 
You take care of it for him. But if he decides to take it all away, that's his business. It's his. I know what it feels like to have great financial loss. I've been there. I've lost a lot of money. I know you find that hard to believe, but I have. I know what it's like to have property stolen. I've had stuff stolen. But listen, the pain is less when you realize it's not yours. It's God's. It wasn't yours in the first place. That thing that got stolen, it was God's. It stole from God. Not you. You see, the perspective seems to change when we realize it's not ours. Not only do we need to realize that God owns everything, we, re- we need to recognize where our treasure is. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This principle is true. We experience it often. I'd, I don't play the stock market. I don't, I don't do that. I have a diversified fund through Guidestone that I just, that, that's where my money goes. I just don't have the time to go in and like, oh, what's going to happen with this stock and that stock and move money around. But let's say that you invest heavily in a certain stock and then a week later, you find out that that stock got sold to another company. What do you do? Do you think, oh, well, oh, well, tough luck? No. You then would read about that company. You would want to know, is my stock going to go up or is my stock going to go down? You may call your broker. You may log on to your little E-Trade account or whatever it is. You want, you want to know what's going to happen so you can sell or buy. So you can do whatever needs to be done. In the same way, when I log in to check my investments, if I see, oh, well, I lost $1,000 last year, I want to know why. We do these things because our heart follows where our treasure is. You see, my money is there, so my, my heart goes there. You've heard it said, show me your checkbook or bank account, and I will tell you what you love most or value most. What I am saying is if you're going to battle greed, you need to recognize where your treasure is. If your treasure is with money or things, you're going to have problems. If you really want to have a heart for the things of God, that means you invest in the things of God. That means you put your money in the things of God. You invest your treasure with the things of God. If you're going to give money to a cause, you want to know what's going on with that cause. If you're sending money to a missionary in a foreign country and you read about Christian persecution in that country, you're going to be in prayer for that missionary. If you can, if you, can you will try to contact them. You're trying to make sure that they are okay because your heart is where your money is. You've invested there. So I, I, I say, if you want to battle greed, you need to recognize where your heart's at. And if your heart is not on the things of God, then you need to move your treasure to the things of God. Recognize where your treasure is at, and you will know this by knowing where your heart is at. If it's not on the things of God, move your treasure. Thirdly, you're going to battle greed by living your life in light of eternity. That seems like an odd saying. I, I, I say that often. And sometimes I wonder, I'm like, do people even know what I'm talking about? Live your life in light of eternity. What, what we're saying is live your life focused on heaven. Greed is always short-sighted. It is focused on the here and now. And gaining what we can gain in this life only. When someone only has a few days left to live, the thoughts running through their mind are not, boy, I wish I could make more money. Because at that point, they're leaving all their money to someone else or something else. Their money's worthless. Now stop and think about it. We're all dying. Death is certain. 
We're going to leave everything we've gained in this world behind. Every single thing will be left behind. When a billionaire dies, it's left behind. He leaves it all behind. The old saying is, you don't see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You can't take it with you. But you can send it ahead to the bank that's in heaven. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, both Jesus and Paul spoke about laying up treasures in heaven. Jesus told a parable about an unrighteous steward who knew that he was going to be fired. So what did he do? He quickly used what he had to make some friends for himself for the future. And Jesus gives the application of this parable in Luke chapter 16. He says this, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now notice what Jesus said. He said, when your wealth fails, not if it fails, when your wealth fails, because money will fail us, when we die, it's gone. Jesus says, make money, take money, which is unrighteous, and use it to make friends for eternity. Use the money that He has given you, which is going to fail, and invest in something that will succeed. Namely, take your money and invest it in bringing people to heaven. Those aren't my words. You say, well, that's great, Pat. You're just trying to get us to give more money to the church. Those are not my words. Those are the words of Jesus. How often do we hold our money so tight-fisted instead of using it in a way that would honor God? Fourthly, give more, not get more. Giving is the antidote to greed. When you get more money, what's usually your first thought? I, let me just give a confession. Lots of times when I get more money, if you were to walk up to me and say, Pastor, here's a thousand bucks. My first thought, I'm just being honest. Don't get mad at me. My first thought is, how am I going to spend this? Right? That's my first thought. And maybe that's not your first thought because maybe you're far more wealthy than I am. I don't know. But that's my first thought. How am I going to spend this? What can I buy now? Ooh. That's our thought. How am I going to spend this on myself to keep it to myself? Is it possible that God is allowing you to get more money to make things more comfortable? Not to make things more comfortable in your life, but to help someone else? I mean, God is a loving Father. He does not deny us good things. But, and it could be possible that He's giving you money to make your life more comfortable. That's quite a, a possibility. But it's also possible that you're comfortable enough. And He's sending you more so that you can use it to further His purpose. If you, you, if you assume that this is all to spend on you, well, you might be misusing the money. Listen, if you've been in our church for any length of time with me as a pastor, you've heard me say that tithing, which we equate with 10%, is not God's standard for giving. I don't know why that gets stuck in our mind. Probably because well-meaning pastors try to preach on tithing so people give more and then they arrive at the 10% rule. I wish we could get it out of our head. You see, 10% is a nice, convenient, low amount to start with. It's not the ceiling. It's the floor. The New Testament standard of giving is to give God, give to God as He has prospered you. 
That is the standard, which means that if you can afford to give more, then you do so. You don't say, well, I gave my 10%. That's what 10% does for us, churches. I mean, churches all over, because the average person doesn't even give 10%. But churches all over, they, well, I gave my 10%. I did my duty. Check that box. 10%. Every time. Every week. First thing that comes out, 10%. God owns it anyway. Do you think God owns just 10% of it? In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul's speaking about a cheerful giver. Then he says this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. When God gives you an abundance, your needs are met, then you should be prayerfully considering, how am I going to give out of the surplus that God has given to me? George Mueller was dependent on God's people for his support. He lived a modest life and gave away the rest. For many years, he almost, if not completely, supported the entire staff of 33 missionaries with the China Inland Mission by himself. In a typical year, George Mueller lived on 8% of his income. 8%. And gave away 92% of his income. He could have been wealthy. He could have lived lavishly. But instead, he chose to live simply and lay up treasures in heaven. Giving is God's antidote to greed. We need to give more, not get more. Listen, our church this year, let me just be real honest. Our church this year is projected to close out this year in our books, even after farm income, at around roughly close to $20,000 in the hole close to that and we've done that every year we close in the hole for five years i've been your pastor at some point we keep doing that our general fund savings will drop below a hundred thousand dollars probably roughly five years what are we gonna do at that point Let's not wait till that point to get serious. Let's not wait until we're at that point that, oh, well, you know what? We better get serious. No, now's the time to get serious. Now. I would venture to guess our budget could be greater. I would venture to guess that many of us could be giving more. Some of us may be far more. The call is to get it, give out of what God has blessed you with. We are to give more, not get more. You're not here to amass as much as you can get, but to give away as much as you can give away. We must cultivate contentment, and we do so by battling greed. But why? Why should we be content? Why should we want to be content? What is the overall motivation behind being content? content i think the end of verse five and verse six answer this for us so let's see how to be content for he said i will never leave you nor forsake you so we can confidently say the lord is my helper i will not fear what can man do to me you want to be content then you trust in god's providence you build your entire life on god and his promises listen until you believe in god's providence you'll never ever master contentment Contentment depends on us trusting in God's providence. Here's the thing. We're always learning about God's providence. Let me be honest. There's times I struggle trusting in God's providence. Remember, he's speaking to the people that have lost their property. It's hard to trust in God's providence when you go through something like that, when you lose something. 
It's normal to struggle with God's providence when going through those hard times in life. You're not weird, you're just normal. When you struggle with God's providence, there's nothing weird about it. But if you want to be content, you have to trust God. Contentment comes when our life is built on God, not on the gift. When our life's built on God, not on the gift. So many times, people try to use God to get what they want. And they will never know contentment. Because stuff will never satisfy the longing of your heart. Now, I'm a, I'm a stress eater. You may or may not know that about me, but I'm a stress eater. When I am stressed, I eat. And you know what? Sometimes I think, boy, that food is going to make me happy. Who cares if I ate a whole thing of ice cream? I'm going to be happy because I'm stressed out. And I'm, I'm going to eat this food. And you eat it, at least for me, I eat it and then I still feel miserable, right? Because then I'm even more stressed because I'm mad at myself for eating a whole container of ice cream. Why did I do that? And we do this all the time. We get what we think will make us happy and soon it wears out and it's not the shiny toy we thought it was going to be and we long for something else. Why? Because only God can satisfy your heart, not things. Israel's out wandering in the wilderness, they're longing for meat, and God sent them meat. And guess what? God also sent them a curse, a spiritual curse. Rachel said to Jacob, give me children or I will die. And God gave her children, but she did indeed die at the birth of her second son. Psalm 73 is a psalm where the psalmist is envious of the wicked, prospering until he... Until he uh, Uh, realizes some things in the light of eternity because he realized that God would judge the wicked but he will go to heaven and this is what he exclaims whom have I in heaven but you and besides you I desire nothing on earth my flesh and my heart will fail but God is my strength and my portion forever listen you will be content when you build your life on God not on what God can give to you Build your life on God. Then you will be content. This is how David was content. When his enemies were seeking to end his life, he sought God and he wrote, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. If you want to be content, build your life on God. Contentment comes when we trust in God, our sovereign helper. It says, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You know, this is the only time in the entire New Testament where the Lord is called our helper. The promises that we have that he is our helper is not the promise of some fickle man. It is a promise of our almighty God. Men will fail you. But God spoke the whole universe into existence. And He will never fail you. There are two promises given here. Let's focus on them real quick. God will never leave or forsake you. I will never leave or forsake you is a guarantee of God's continual provision and protection. In the Greek, there are five negatives there. To bring out the emphasis. The hymn, How Firm a Foundation, does a great attempt to capture the emphasis of, the, of, the, of that verse. The soul that on Jesus had leaned for repose. I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. God is hammering home the assurance to his readers and to us that there is never any circumstance ever or anywhere in which he will ever, 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 ever abandon his children. Never. God's power is omnipotent. His wisdom is infinite. His faith is unwavering. His love is unchanging. He will never forsake you. John Owen said, 
all the efficiency and the power and the comfort of divine promises arise from and are resolved in the excellencies of the divine nature. He has said who it is that is truth and he cannot deceive. God is promising his presence, his providence and his protection even when his saints go through horrible persecution or torturous death god is right there with them and he will use that trial to take them to be with him in eternity forever he will never forsake you this should cause our heart to be at peace what more could we possibly want than the presence of an almighty god What is all the wealth and pleasures of this world and the honor and the recognition of the world without God? They're meaningless. The comfort of our soul is not dependent on provision, but the appropriation of God's divine promises to your life that He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is always there with you. What ground of fear do we possibly have? No one can take God away. He is with us. Our money, our health, our loved ones can lose them all. But God remains. God is all we need to be content, church. He's it. Don't believe me? Go to a third world country. Where God is all they have. Go somewhere where kids are starving to death because they can't eat their next meal. All they got's God. And they're more content than we are in America. All that we'd realize that God is all we need. But not only that, He will be our helper. Those who God does not forsake, he helps. Thomas Manton says this, Man can do much. He can find, imprison, banish, reduce to a morsel of bread. Yes, torture and put to death. Yet as long as God is with us and stands for us, we may boldly say, I will not fear what can man do. Why? God will not see you utterly perish. He can give joy and sorrow, life and death. This Hebrew church was facing persecution, which is scary. But God is your helper. What can man do to you? In fear, we could say, well, man can take away from me my earthly possessions. And man could torture me. And man could kill me. Man could do something to my family. Sure, but no one can take the Lord nor his riches in heaven from you. And that is what matters. There is a story of the great preacher, John Chrysostom. He was called before the emperor for challenging the emperor's authority. And the emperor said to John, if you don't stop saying what you're saying, I'm going to banish you. And John said, this is my father's world. Where are you going to send me? And then the emperor said, okay, I'll kill you. And he said, no, you won't. My life is hid with Christ and God. The emperor said, well, I'll drive you away from all your friends. And he said, I have such a friend in heaven who will never leave me nor forsake me. And then he said, well, I'll take away all your possessions. And he said, no, you won't. The Lord is my treasure. Do you hear what he said? Did you get it? The Lord is my helper. I'm not afraid of you. What can man do? do even the emperor what can you do to me that's a man who's content the author of hebrews is calling us to the same martin luther perhaps said it best in that great hymn a mighty fortress the body they may kill god's truth abideth still his kingdom is forever he's our helper in conclusion let me say this 
Henry Kissinger said, to Americans, usually tragedy is wanting something very badly and not getting it. Many people have had to learn in their private lives and nations have had to learn in their historical experience that perhaps the worst form of tragedy is wanting something badly, getting it, and finding it empty. Wow. Wanting something badly, getting it, and finding it empty. Are you content? Are you cultivating contentment in your life? A.W. Tozer said, The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Is God your treasure this morning? Are you content? It's just God. Is that reflected in your life? Or is your life one of greed? A Puritan sat down to his meal. He found that he only had a little bread and some water. His response was to exclaim, What? All this in Jesus Christ too? George Mueller used to say the first business of every day is to be truly at rest and happy in God. That's where you start. Make sure that you spend time each and every day by battling greed. What is the first thought that you have when someone asks you for money? What's the first thought? Somebody just comes in and asks you for money. You see that person on the street asking for money. What's your first thought? How shameful that our first thought is they're just trying to scam me. How shameful. How shameful that our first thought is I just don't have the money to give. That's not being Christian. What's your first thought when that offering plate passes you by? Is it, well, I'm going to give my 10%? Church, we must battle greed. Build your life on God and trust that He is your sovereign helper and everything else will fall into place. Must battle greed. Are you content this morning? Here in a minute, we're going to sing a song. If the Lord has spoken to you in some way, shape, or form, then I would ask that you'd come down, and if you need to pray, I'd pray with you. If you need to make a decision, if you just need to come and say, Pastor, I'm, I'm greedy. I'm not going to think about it. Yeah, I can be greedy too. If you want prayer, I'll pray with you. If you want to pray by yourself, you need to pray in your pew. I don't know how the Lord may have used his word to convict you this morning, but I pray that you would take the time to respond. Let's close in prayer.